We've been teaching on the biblical origin of family, God's ordination of the family. And my main endeavor in teaching on the family was to get to this sermon right here. This is the sermon I've been aiming for for probably eight, nine, ten weeks. So that's why this is a very critical one. I, I guess it's probably better that I do it on video. That way I can be a lot more precise and, and regimented. If we have a bunch of people present and I'm present, I might end up flowing with the Holy Spirit a little bit more. But I want to communicate this information in a very structured manner. So as you know, in reviewing the last several weeks, we talked about God ordained the family, husband and wife. Uh, men leave mother and father and cleave to their wife and women submit to their husbands and husbands lay down their wives and it's a mutually symbiotic and beneficial relationship. We are not the same, that's obvious. And when a man and a woman come together, they start their own lineage now. And the Bible's very specific, even before the concept of generational family was established, Adam said by the Spirit of God, I will leave my mother and father, which he didn't have one. I will leave mother and father. I will cleave to my wife. We will be one flesh. And that's how it's meant to be. And what that signifies to us is that every marriage affords that new couple a fresh start. That might be a fresh start for the glory of God. It might be a fresh start away from the glory of God. It might be a fresh start for the glory of God if you are raised pagan and you come away from a pagan genealogy and you marry a woman of God or you marry a man of God and the two of you come together and you leave your pagan origins and you come over here and you begin a Christian legacy. That would be a fresh start for God. Or it may be you were raised in the house of God around the things of God, you backslide, you marry a pagan, or maybe in this day and age you marry a homosexual, and you get a fresh start away from the things of God and curse your lineage to hell. Either way, marriage is meant to be a fresh start, a fresh break. So hear me very clearly. From the book of Genesis, marriage is meant to be a fresh start and a fresh break. This does not diminish the later commandments of honoring your father and mother. But before there ever was a father and a mother, the Bible said you will leave father and mother, cling to your spouse, and be one flesh. So if we go by the hermeneutical law called the law first mentions, the fresh start basis of husband and wife leaving mother and father and starting their own legacy, that supersedes this concept of being indebted to a mother and father or a brother or a sister. And I believe the Lord did this in wisdom, knowing that there's going to arise occasions where people are raised up in the same household, but they don't choose to save the, uh, serve the same God. People will be raised up in the same household and they will choose a different God than their father. Maybe you choose the God of the Lord Jesus Christ and you make a break from the God's of your father. Or maybe the God of your father is the Lord Jesus Christ and you decide to make a break from that. Either way, we see that the primary family unit is husband and wife and children until those children are raised up and marry off. We see the nucleus of culture being husband and wife. As Paul said in Ephesians 5, it represents Christ and the church. So I want you to keep that in mind. 
because we, we are very international, we are a very multicultural, multi-generational, multi-denominational church, and all of our cultures, whether African or Latino or Southern America or Yankee America, we all have a different culture when it comes to family. Some are more similar than others. Some of them are a little bit weirder than others. They all have some perversion in them, and we need to, we need to come back to the Word of God. So with that being said, I want to address tonight uh, what I'm calling navigating family drama, how to navigate family drama. We might add in parentheses, maybe for your notes, not necessarily sermon title, navigating Christian family drama. What do you, what do, you do when your extended family is a Christian? They serve God, but they don't serve God like you do, and they think you need to be the one to change. And this has always irritated me ever since it started happening to me that I'm the one that serves Jesus and I've got an extended family member somewhere. They serve Jesus, but they expect me to change to their standard or their lived out Christianity. And if I try to get them to change to my standard of Christianity, they call me the controlling one. Uh, so it's just for public record. On both sides of my family, my dad's side, my mom's side, I have genuine believers family members that are genuine born-again believers. And I guess I'm thinking more immediate, aunts, uncles, first cousins, second cousins. That's kind of immediate to me. I am the only tongue talker. I am the only one that knows how to cast out demons. I'm not the only preacher, but I have traveled and preached further than anybody else. I'm the only senior pastor I'm the only one that has an understanding of perhaps eschatology the way I do, definitely the gifts of the Spirit, definitely the ministry gifts, uh, uh, probably the best understanding of the fruit of the Spirit. I understand how to operate in all the gifts of the Spirit, some of them more than others. I'm the only one that's pioneered pastoral work in churches and written books. So in all humility, in the McMichael lineage, I am perhaps peak apex predator <laughs> in lived out Christianity. Now, that may not be saying a lot compared to great men of God I look up to, like a pastor, a quoquo, a Dr. Barclay, a Dr. Summerall, a Brother Hagen, a Billy Graham. But for my family, I am probably peak apex. I, I'm, not, I'm not the top. I want uh, in, in the world. I, I want to be better. I'm always striving, but hopefully you see my, my poor example. When it comes to my lineage, my mom's side, my dad's side, even though my grandfather was a Baptist pastor, even though he did missions in South Africa under apartheid during segregation in Georgia where he pastored and he preached to blacks and he preached to Indians against the Southern Baptist Convention's wishes, he still preached to them and told them, if you make me to, to separate from the blacks and the Indians in South Africa, I will quit the Southern Baptist. That was my grandfather. I'm very proud of that. Even he, as great as a man of God as he was, I would think perhaps now, I, I'm peak apex because, again, I flow in the gifts of the Spirit. We've started pioneering works now, written numerous books, telecasting. I, I'm probably peak apex, but if I dare command any of my extended family to come up to my level, they'll say, why are you trying to control us? And that's good for you, not for me. Yet, many of them will try to bring me to their level. And I'm called controlling or maybe pushy, but when they start to use their manipulation on me, that's called be part of our family, Chris. That bugs me. 
These are the kind of dramas we're dealing with. We're dealing primarily with, with the question, how do I handle my family who loves Jesus, but they don't understand how I serve Jesus? That's what we're going to try to address tonight. So let me say a couple things about the Jewish culture so you can understand why what Jesus Christ said was so revolutionary and yet still applicable to us today. So I'm going to read a couple of my notes here. Just listen carefully. The teachings of Jesus deal heavily with family allegiances. When you go through, as we did a couple Sunday mornings ago, and we look at everything Jesus Christ said to the Jews who were his primary audience, he was really beginning to prepare the Jews to have their families torn apart. And that's very significant because we know Jesus is pro-family, pro-heterosexual family, one husband, one wife, <clears throat> in holy matrimony till death do them part. This is revolutionary because a bulk of what he said, a handful of times he said, honor your father and mother. The rest of the time he said, be ready for me to tear your family apart. <laughs> the Jews are perhaps, we said this before, the most familial of all cultures. By familiar, we mean family-oriented. All cultures have their family culture. Or excuse me, yeah, all families, all cultures have their family distinctions and their, their place of family importance. But there is perhaps none more familial, more family-centric than the Jews. Uh, we see this throughout scriptures when they know their tribes coming out of Egypt they knew their tribes. They were given tribal territories. Issachar, Zebulun, Neptali, uh, Dan, Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim. These were all territories, and that's where you lived if you were from the tribe of Dan, or if you were the tribe of Asher. They knew their fathers. They could say, like, I am, I'm Gideon, the Abizarite of the tribe of Manasseh. They knew their lineage. Most of us don't even know the name of our great-grandfather. <laughs> We don't even know where our great-grandfather lived, but the Jews, they could tell you everything about them going back to Egypt. They knew their genealogies. How many genealogies are in the Bible? Matthew, excuse me, Luke opens up with the genealogy of Jesus Christ going all the way back to Adam, coming through and hitting uh, uh, Boaz and hitting Jesse and hitting David and then all the way down to Joseph. This is very rich in family. As Westerners, Africans will appreciate what I'm about to say. But as Westerners, if I say, tell me something about yourself, what you'll say is, my name is so-and-so, and I am a engineer. I am a school teacher. Our Western culture teaches us individuality. Most other cultures outside the West teach communal. If you were to ask many Africans, tell me something about yourself, they would say, well, I am a Nigerian. I'm from the Igbo tribe, or I'm from Kenya, I am a Maasai, or I am from uh, South Africa, I'm Kosa, or I'm um, uh, Effie, uh, Effie-speaking language. That's, that's Nigeria. They're going to relate to their family. They're going to relate to their dad. You go to Iceland, they talk about their last name. I'm Thorson. I'm the son of Thor. Thor is a very common name. It's Scandinavian. Or I'm Odinson, or I am... You know, Siggy, Siggy's son, Siggy's daughter. Uh, they're going to relate to who their father is. 
not us as Westerners. That's why it's important for us to understand before we advance our topic tonight, how family oriented, how important allegiances were to father and to mother. And this even goes back to their commandments under the law, that the first commandment with promise, commandment number five out of the 10 commandments was honor your father and mother. Jewish culture teaches us that when a young man went and betrothed a wife, he went back to his father's house and he prepared a place for her there and added on to his dad's compound or village or tents. And once he had built that place and prepared a place for his wife, then he would go back to her and he was ready to bring her to himself. So even then, they dwelt under their father's tent. And that's how it was. We see that when uh, Isaac got a wife, we see it when Jacob got a wife, they went, found them, and brought them back to dwell in the tents of Abraham. They had commandments for parenting, the first commandment with promise. They kept their land in their families. They were Levitical laws that said, you cannot sell your family's land. If it's given to you, it stays in the family. If you remember the story of Ahab and um, uh, Jezreel, um, the Jezreelite, Abinadab, the Je is that right? The, the, the wine, the vineyard he wanted, Ahab, the evil king Ahab of Israel, there was a vineyard he wanted and... I think it was Abinadad, he would not sell it to him because it's against the Mosaic law. And so Ahab is sad about it. So Jezebel says, well, you're the king. Do what you want. Tell you what, hubby, I will get you the vineyard, Naboth, not Abinadab. The names are running together. Naboth, the Jezreelite in his vineyard. And so, uh, he refused to sell it to the king because it violated the law because it was his family's vineyard. I, I use this as an example to show you how family-centric the Jews were by command. They had Leverite laws, and that's a law. It's a, it's a law that says, if my brother dies, my brother's name is Ryan McMichael. He lives in Florida. If my brother were to die, this is an Old Testament law, if my brother were to die and leave his wife without a child, I, would, I was to marry his wife and impregnate her, give her a baby, so that his lineage could live on through his wife. That is what is called a leverate law or leverite. And the Bible has that. That's how important family was. It also seems to somewhat promote polygamy. And this is one of those theological debates. Is the law for or against polygamy when if I'm married and my brother's wife dies, I'm obligated to marry my sister-in-law that she might conceive seed and I give my brother lineage so he can inherit my brother's land. I just give you these as examples of how critical it was to the Jews after 1400 years of the law 1,400 years basically from the time the law is given to the time of Christ's manifestation in the earth. 1,400 years of these laws, the Jews had, by the law of God, developed a very strong family culture. The South has nothing on the Jews' family culture because most of what we have is false politeness. They at least had the law of Moses guiding them. The promises of salvation were for families, and that's, that's in the Old Testament as well. That's under the law. But so were the curses. If the father 
sinned against God, the curse would fall his, uh, befall his wife and his children. If you think about Achan and Joshua's, the book of Joshua, Achan sinned, and he and his wife and his kids were put to death for it. That's how tight-knit family was. This is important because the Lord is about to address this culture that the law of God has created, and he is about to say, I'm going to tear it all apart. <laughs> how loving of Jesus to look at his disciples and say, I'm about to wreak havoc in your home. Well, this isn't the gospel of the Billy Graham crusades, but it is the gospel of the gospel. One final example, maybe one or two. The Old Testament concludes with Malachi's prophecy. He said, Behold, I'll send Elijah before the great and coming day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers towards the sons and the hearts of the sons back towards the fathers. That's a prophecy of John the Baptist. So even, even the Old Testament concludes with the restoration of family. He said, lest I come and smite the earth with a plague. So if God can't turn the hearts of the fathers towards the sons and the hearts of the sons back towards the fathers, he'll smite the earth with a plague. That's scripture. That's the ministry of John the Baptist. And yet Jesus still says, I will tear your family apart. I want that to sink in because God wants us to honor our mother and father. He wants us to pray for our family's salvation. It would be wonderful if all of us could serve God with our family and our extended family, but it's not always going to be possible, and we have to prepare our hearts for that. And this might be another aspect of the death of the American dream where we can all just be one big family, and yet it isn't necessarily so. The Old Testament concludes. In fact, I'll read it to you. It's Malachi chapter 4. It's the last verse of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 6. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's the end of the Old Testament. Verse 5 says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So that's John the Baptist's ministry. He's supposed to restore families. And yet the Lord Jesus appears on the scene and he knows the effect he's going to have on families. Because who's Jesus Christ sent to? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he knows his audience. That's his primary target. Though he ministers to Jews, excuse me, Greeks and Gentiles and Samaritans, his primary target audience is, is the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so this is why it's so shocking when he begins to say, you think I've come to bring peace, nay, a sword. Because up until this point, all of Israel is awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And if all of Israel is waiting for the coming of the Messiah, then they should all be able to receive him together to the same degree, to the same effect, and receive salvation through him. And all of Israel will get saved at the same time and will enter into the millennial kingdom as a big happy family, except it doesn't happen that way, not in any family, not even today, unfortunately. <laughs> Every Jew at the time of Christ is looking for the Messiah, but not every Jew will find him. And this is the cultural setting of Matthew chapter 10. So let's look there. Hopefully you understand this now, what I've explained. Israel and the Jews are a very exclusive people. 
I was just listening to Brother Summerall preach from years ago. I have scores and scores and scores of hours of his sermons. He's primarily who I listen to because I have a lot of his stuff. And for me personally, he may not be your flavor. Just as a side note, Dr. Summerall is someone who God has assigned me to, even though I never met him. I heard his name the day he died. That's the first time I ever heard his name. And I was at Tech. It was April of 1996. I was crossing the crosswalk there by the chemistry building, a caddy corner to the library. And a friend of mine ran up and said, did you hear? And I said, no, what? He said, Lester Sonrall just died. And when he said that, my, my spirit man failed me. And I said, oh my goodness, what? what? That's horrible. And then I said, wait, wait, who is Lester Sumrall? And he said, he's a great missionary. And I said, wow, that's horrible. And I was headed to class. Calculus was where I was headed. And at that time, a lady named Miss Shelley Forgey was my calculus teacher. We're still friends with her husband to this day. He's actually a banker in town. It's been a blessing to this church. This is 1996. So I, I go straight to Miss Forgey's calculus class. I'm having to retake calculus because the previous semester I had No Mercy Circe, Dr. Circe. I was getting an A in Dr. No Mercy Circe's course. And then the 85-year-old man dropped dead mid-semester. <laughs> and then I was given Dr. Gandhi. And uh, I could not understand Tita and P. How do you do mathematics with Tita and P? I mean, can you understand me right now? Calculus is hard enough as it is, and then to be able to do D10 P. So I went from A minus to a D. <laughs> and so thus I was in Miss Shelley Forgey's calculus class retaking it. So I go see Miss Shelley, and she was a, she's a spirit-filled lady, and I knew that. And I told her, Lester Sumrall died. And she said, oh, my goodness. I said, yes, who was he? And she explained him to me and that he was a great missionary. So then after that, that's 1996, in the year 2000, I was serving God in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was in my church's bookstore there, and the Spirit of the Lord spoke unto me by the word of the Lord, and, he, and the Lord spoke to me and said, begin to read after Lester Summerall. So then I began to buy up every book I ever found, bought one of his books in Tulsa, Oklahoma, two years later in obedience to that commandment to read after Lester Summerall. That book spoke to me to go to his Bible school. So I went to his Bible school and I met my wife and I met Gertie and I met Steve-O. And so that was kind of a divine thing. So that's why all these years later, though Dr. Summerall has been dead since 1996, that's 25 years now this year, <clears throat> I still have a grace to, to listen to him. And when I listen to him, it doesn't fail. When I listen to him, even any of his sermons I've heard a dozen times, it makes my insides tremble. And so... I still stay faithful to that heavenly assignment. I own almost every book he's ever written. There's the occasional one that I come across that I didn't know he wrote, but it's been out of print for 70 years. I have his very first book he ever wrote in 1938. Actually, I actually have two or three copies of that one. Anyway, I was listening to Dr. Summerall a couple days ago, and he said he was teaching on the prophecy of Balaam when Balak had hired Balaam the soothsayer to curse Israel. And Balaam prophesies in favor of Israel, as you know, from Numbers chapter 16. And he says, these people shall dwell alone. And Dr. Sumrall went on to say, yes, the Jews to this day, they dwell alone. They, wherever you find them in the world, they're still Jews. 
they still live as Jews. They still keep the Sabbath. They still go to the synagogue. They still maintain the Torah. They're still Jews to this day. Nations have risen and fallen. Cultures have come and gone, but the Jews have retained their Judaism because God prophesied through a hireling, TBN prophet, in Numbers chapter 16, that these people would dwell alone. And part of that is this family culture that we stick together. We are Jews and we stick together. That's the power that Jesus Christ is about to address. And he basically, he's about to look at that thing called the Jewish phone book and he's about to just tear it apart. So anytime you think you have family pressure from your little Southern family pulling on you, think about what the Jews in 33 AD were facing. Matthew chapter 10, that is a long warm up to this verse, by the way. Verse 16, behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men. Well, what men? Well, the men that can deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues. He's talking about their own people, their own people. There's probably no more prejudice a person on the planet than the Jew. <laughs> because if you're not a Jew, you're nothing to the Orthodox Jew. So the Lord is talking to Jews. He's talking to Israelites. And he says, beware men. What kind of men, Jesus? Well, the kind that will deliver you up to councils and synagogues. Well, that means Jewish people. He's basically saying, you don't have to worry about the Gentiles who you don't like because you're prejudiced. You got to worry about your own people. What? You mean the very same people that claim they're looking for the Messiah? The Messiah is telling me to be careful of those people. Yep. Because not everybody who says they love Jesus does. And your relationship with Jesus Christ and the fervency with which you and I serve him is going to expose a lot of mediocrity in our family. They will scourge you in their synagogues and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them, that's the Jews, and the Gentiles. So up until now, we're dealing with Jews, 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 and then the Gentiles. There were Jewish kings in this time. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. Think about how revolutionary and shocking that statement was. Jesus Christ starts broad with your fellow Jew, your fellow Israelite, delivering you up to councils, your fellow neighbor, your Israelite, delivering you up to scourging in the synagogues. The synagogue is the local church, by the way. So he's talking about, he's like, you're going to go to your church and they're going to whip you there for following me. Can you imagine being abused and maybe stoned or beat up in your own church for following Jesus closer than those who claim they follow Jesus? Look, look at that verse again. That's the bottom of verse 17. Scourged in synagogues. The synagogue is the local church in this time. The local church that we see today is patterned after the synagogue system that came out of Babylon. A, a congregation of no more than 300 where they met and studied the Torah every Sabbath. Led by a rabbi, a pastor, 
who would expound upon them, Moses and the prophets, as they awaited the day of their Messiah. And now the Messiah is here and he says, hey, you know that house of God where you've learned about me for the last 400 years? They're going to whip you. They're going to stone you. They're going to punch you and brutalize you in your house of worship because you love me more than they claim to. These are, these are shocking words that we sometimes skip through because we're westernized. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. He went from the Jewish neighbor and the Jewish rabbi betraying you and brutalizing you. Now he says, it'll be your brother. Wait, wait, you mean my fellow Abizarite? You mean my dad's son? You mean we're both of the tribe of Manasseh? No, 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 no. Manassites don't betray one another. Judites don't betray one another. Levites don't betray one another. And the Lord Jesus says, your brother will betray. That fulfills a psalm. It says, it was my own brother who betrayed me. He that I went and broke bread with. He that I went to the house of God with. That's who betrayed me. Talking about Judas, of course. The brother shall deliver up the brother to death. And the father shall deliver up the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. These are the words of Jesus Christ. And can you imagine how shocking this is to the ears of Israel? who they've all as a nation been longing for their Messiah in one heart, one accord, one faith, the Messiah shows up and says, you all don't want me like you claim you do. And some of you will follow me and your own family will deliver you up to die for me. These are stout words. And, and again, let me remind you, our theme is navigating Christian family drama. Until your family wants to kill you for skipping the family reunion, we ought to just chill out a little bit because it's not that bad yet. Let me catch up on my notes here. Every Jew is looking for the Messiah, but not every Jew will find him. Let me keep reading. You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, But he that endures to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee you into another. Who's persecuting you? Your father, your brother, your child. Who is persecuting in the last verse? Verse 21, it's your own family members. When they persecute you in this city, flee into another. Jesus Christ had to do that when he preached in his own hometown. They read off his family genealogy. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't Mary with us? Aren't his sisters here present with us today in this service? Jesus fled the city and never went back. Flee into another city, for verily I send you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel to the Son of Man be come up. Okay, let me maybe jump ahead a little bit. If Jesus is telling his disciples, if your family persecutes you, flee the city and don't go back. Do you think maybe you shouldn't go back to family reunion again next year? If they persecuted you last year, mocked your Christianity, mocked your spirit-filledness, your tongue-talking, your evangelism, your faithfulness to church, your generosity in the tithing and the offering. If last year's family reunion persecuted you and mocked you, and Jesus Christ says here, flee that city, go to a different city, do you think you really ought to go back to that family reunion again? I'm asking. I I could see it going either way. Depends on what kind of witness you have or how bold you are. I would be prone, because you know my personality, I'd be prone to just preach to the whole crowd, my family, and say, y'all are pagans. Our grandparents were Christians, but you're not. 
Our parents feel, uh, feared God, but you don't. And maybe if I'm never coming back, I at least get one last gospel licking in, one good sermon before I just, I'm never coming back to this family reunion. This isn't my family anymore. Jesus is preparing his disciples to have to flee their family property that was given to them by the law of Moses in order to preach the gospel. You can now understand why Peter says, we have forsaken all, Lord. And the Lord says, there's not any that have left houses that were inherited and lands that were inherited and assigned by the law of Moses and family. Those three things are given to you by the law of Moses if you're an Israelite. Jesus said, you forsake those for me I'll give it back to you. This life and more which is to, in the life that is to come. But you're having to be willing and be prepared to walk away from what is your family culture. Let's keep reading. The disciple is not above his master nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough or it is good enough for the disciple that he be as his master or equal to. And the servant, he's equal to his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call him them of his household? So if they mocked Jesus, if his own hometown, if his own family mocked him, we should be prepared for our family to mock us. Now jump down to verse 32. Let's pick it up there for time's sake. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny, deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father. So if the whole context so far is family persecution, family persecution, family persecution, then who might he be referring to in verse 32 when he says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men. Who's the men you've got to confess Christ to first? Family. Who did Gideon have to confess his allegiance to God Almighty to first? Family, his dad, he had to tear down his dad's altar at night and take a stand against his dad's paganism that night. He was terrified to do it, but thank God he obeyed it. That's Judges chapter six. You should go read it. Do not think I've come to send peace on earth. I have come to send a sword, for I'm come to set a man at variance against his father. But whoa, whoa, Lord, you said in Malachi four, five, and six, that before you came, you'd turn the hearts of the father to the children and the children to the father. Yep, that's true too. But it doesn't always work, does it? That's the will of God. That's what he wants to do. That's his perfect plan. But he also knows not everybody will choose him. And he knows that Jesus Christ, he knows that he himself in his divineness, his lordship, that he will split a house down the middle. And we have to be prepared for that. And again, he's saying this to people who claim, claim, claim they want the Messiah. And don't you and I have folks in our family who claim, claim, claim they love the Messiah? Of course we do. I've come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Wait, wait, so you mean it's biblical to have a little animosity between your in-laws? Only if the animosity is because of our stand for Christ. There'll always be an animosity 
even in a Christian family with extended Christian family, because somebody in that family is going to serve God hotter than the others. And that hotness will convict the lukewarm and mediocrity of those who only have a said faith, a confessed faith, but, but not a lived faith. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. A man's foes. Now this word foe here, I looked it up. This means hostility. Hostility begins in your home. Opposition, it's another translation. Opposition will be found first in your bloodline. Hatefulness because of Christ. That begins in your, in your bloodline. Yeah, but blood's thicker than water. And almost when you say it like that, it sounds like a banjo song, don't it? Yeah, blood's thicker than water. Actually, that sounds a little Kentucky to me, not so much Sparta. I apologize, Sparta. Sounds more like a Kentucky person to me. <laughs> yeah, if blood's thicker than water, then why are you persecuting me for Jesus? You should love me because blood is thicker than water. Have you ever noticed that folks who say blood is thicker than water, they want you to do all the compromising, but they themselves will compromise nothing. Pastor Okwokwo taught me that. He was the first to ever say it to me. He said, they will say blood is thicker than water because it's true, but blood is not thicker than spirit. And all it is is selfish manipulation on behalf of weird, half-churched, half-saved family. It also means enemy. Your enemies begin in your household. That's where your first enemies are found. When you grab a hold of Jesus Christ like never before, I got two verses coming to mind right now. When the woman with the issue of blood reached through the press and everybody else was in the press and everybody was pressing against Jesus, when she actually connected, she and Jesus were left all alone and everybody else was ostracized. And, and your family, let's use this as a, an allegory for your extended family. Your extended family may be in the press, but they're not activating the power of God for themselves because they're just religiously going through the motions because it looks proper to press towards Jesus. But that woman with the issue of blood, she pressed in, she grabbed the hem of his garment when nobody could see her and, and she took it and it caused power to leave him. And she's the one that got the Lord's attention. Nobody else pulled on the Lord. And the Lord Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And, and Peter says, Lord, you see the thronging multitudes and you say, who touched me? And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Someone's touched me for I behold virtue has left me. And there was this woman. And all of a sudden it's like all of time stands still. Everybody else goes freeze frame, black and white. And it's just her and the Lord Jesus in color. And he's talking to her and everybody who's going through the games is ostracized. Everybody going through the motions, Sunday morning only, lukewarm mediocrity. They are ostracized and the Lord Jesus is only focusing on this woman. When you grab a hold of Jesus Christ, despite your family's church attendance, it'll be you and the Lord Jesus and everybody else will be on the outside. The other scripture that comes to mind is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. That by faith, Noah was moved by fear. He built an ark and condemned the world. <laughs> Noah obeyed God and his obedience condemned everybody around him. One of the things we do, church, that, that frustrates and grieves God is 
we fear our family more than we fear God. And, and we quit the ark project to please mama. Or we, we quit the ark assignment from God to please our brother who lives in Wisconsin. When we ought to obey God and let the chips fall where they may. Noah built an ark and his faith condemned the world. And your faith, it'll save your family, your immediate family like Noah's did, but your faith will probably condemn more people than it saves. Hebrews chapter 11, let me confirm that that's verse seven. We'll conclude with the verse here. I've got lots more scripture to go through, but our final verse is gonna say the same thing. Yep, Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved the fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So let me keep moving here. Imagine the shock of the Messiah dividing a Jewish home with a sword. Verse 37 says, He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. This is a good side note. Family is one of the three crosses Jesus Christ spoke of. You've got to be willing to take up the cross and die to your family. And that is be delivered from their opinions, be delivered from their persuasions, be delivered from their manipulation. We all have to pass that test. The other cross is wealth. Remember he told the rich young ruler in Mark's gospel, uh, one thing thou lackest, go sell all that you have, give the poor, take up your cross and follow me. So being able to master money and being able to give it all away should the Lord require it of you. And the other third thing is self. Die to yourself. Deny yourself. That is ambition and dream. Those are the three crosses I find in the Gospels. That's a good sermon in and of itself worth studying. The Bible speaks of children betraying parents, brothers betraying brothers, fathers betraying children. And what's interesting is all of this that we're looking at here is in the Jewish gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the gospel aimed at the Jews. It's the gospel that uses the term kingdom of heaven, not kingdom of God. The Jews thought they had the kingdom of God, but you came, Matthew came and brought to them the context of the kingdom of heaven, and they said, what is this? What? What? So theologians will tell you Matthew is the Jewish gospel, and yet all this violent speech of households being torn asunder by the Messiah, it is heavily demonstrated in the gospel of Matthew, not Luke, not John, not Mark. There are nuances of it there, but not like it is in Matthew. Matthew's the most go uh, the graphic in all this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. This is the story of Jesus rebuking his mother and his brethren. I'm trying to help us navigate family drama. Understand this. If you serve Jesus like we teach you to around here. And again, we're not the best. Please, I don't want you to think Engrafted Word Church is the best. Now, it's okay if you think it's the best church because it's your church and it's my favorite church, but I want you to know, I know we are not the best. That's why I don't ever quit because I want to be the best. That's why we're always improving. That's why we're always correcting and tweaking. But I'm going to tell you, you're going to bring family here and they're going to be offended because they're not used to truth because chances are they come from some place of mediocrity. 
<laughs> Amen. If you serve Jesus like you're trained to here, you're going to put a distance between you and the rest of your family. It's just like if you decide to really run in a race like you know how to run, you're going to pass people up. And you owe it to the Lord Jesus Christ to finish your race with a record time. You don't have permission from Jesus to do the chubby shuffle and to, and to run comfortably. You run and you pursue and you chase. Luke chapter 8. Look in verse 4. Luke 8, 4. And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. And he goes on to teach the sower sows the word. And then he gives the interpretation. Verse 19. So this is the same story flowing. Great multitude. We have several verses of parable, then explanation of parable. Then verse 19. Then came to him his mother and his brethren and could not come at him for the press. That is, this crowd that has come early. <laughs> They've been here. They got here when the service started. You, you guys that keep dragging in late, repent and make a lifestyle change. You're going to get rebuked even more so because Jesus' mother and brethren show up late to the meeting and think they deserve a, a voice with Jesus. They, they expect to get firsthand attention with Jesus. If you want firsthand attention, show up on time. Honor God with his time and he'll honor you with his. It's one thing to show up late because you're coming in from work and, and you just got off and you're coming in a little dirty, a little dusty. I don't care about that. Neither does God. It's one thing if you come in late because you're walking out the door and the baby spit up all over everything and everything was on track and then blah, or you had a flat tire or something. But when you just can't keep track of time because you're a scatterbrain and you're just disrespectful to God because you are lazy, he's not going to give you his best in service because you don't give him anything. You don't do God a favor showing up halfway through service. This pastoral moment was brought to you by your sin and Calgon. Take me away. They came to him, then came to him his mother and his brethren, and they could not come at him for the press. I don't get why folks want to sit on the back. In the Lord's day, they were trying to press towards him. I think if I put most of the seats in the back, they'd be filled up. I wonder what would happen to some of you if we removed all the back row seats. Those of you that are sitting in the back right now. Why do you sit in the back? Let's take a moment because it's just me and two cameras right now. This one and this one and this one and this one. Let me make you laugh a little bit before I swat you pretty hard. Why do you always sit in the back? Are you afraid? Are you a coward? You come early or come late, leave early? Why, why is the back, what's, what's, what, what appeals to the back? You know the anointing works like radiation. It's directly proportional to your closeness to it. It's, uh, it's logarithmic in its power. That's how radiation works. It's very much how the anointing works. You can walk closer to the presence of God and it gets stronger. Why do you sit in the back? I understand security sitting in the back. I understand our ushers having to sit in the back. But why do you sit in the back? What, what, do you, what signal do you send to God by always sitting back there? If you're hungry for God, I, I don't know, hunger kind of makes you want to sit up front. I understand if it's a movie theater and you don't want to crick in the neck watching the Hulk beat up aliens 75 feet tall. I wouldn't want to sit in the front of the theater. I'd, I like to sit in the back in the middle, but not when the presence of God is here. So what's your excuse? 
Some of you have been in this church longer than me and you like the back. What's your justification? Waiting. Because in the Lord's day, there was a press. They wanted to be closer to him and the anointing was stronger up front. Some of you guys are ushers and when you're not on duty, you still sit in the back. Why? Why? I don't get you. I don't sit in the back when I go to services. When I go to conferences, I get assigned up front. I don't want to sit up front because that's kind of a place of honor. But I would rather sit near the front because the anointing is stronger and the anointing can minister to you all service long or it can just be a wispy vapor on the back. Why do you sit in the back? What's your fear? You're afraid in the house of God? Where's your sin? Am I challenging you? This is another pastoral moment brought to you by your excuses, your lukewarmness, and your mediocrity. Now, everybody who's sitting not in the back is thinking, thank God I did not sit in the back tonight. <laughs> All right. It was told him by certain which said, thy mother and thy brethren stand outside. They want to see you, desiring to see you. And he answered and said unto them, to the whole crowd, those that came early, that got a seat up front. My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. What he just said is, those folks outside who showed up late, whose DNA I share, those aren't my mother or my brother. My mother and my brethren are these that hear what I say and do it. Now, this is the same Jesus who said, honor your father and mother, and yet he just publicly rebuked flesh and blood. Pretty powerful word. This is the same Jesus that multiple times throughout the scriptures affirmed the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, honor your father and mother, honor your father and mother. But when father and mother are wrong, and when father and mother are in sin, he's going to teach righteous doctrine. He didn't say, oh, oh I'm sorry, let me, let me stop my meeting and go wait on my mother. I'm sure he's thinking, why weren't you in the meeting earlier? You guys used to come to my meetings. Remember Mary? She didn't start off this ignorant. She didn't start off this cocky. She didn't start off this controlling. Look at John chapter 2. Now, if we ever get to a place where all the seats are packed out, I totally get why people would sit in the back because all the seats are packed out. But I guarantee you this is a Sunday night and you know you got a, a pre-recorded message. The seats aren't packed out, but some of you still choose to sit in the back. Is it because you're pious or just not desirous? <laughs> John chapter 2. Verse 1, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. Pretty good question. A little bit of a swat. And his mother said unto the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. And here's what I wrote about Mary. She didn't start off getting rebuked like she just did in Luke. <laughs> she began 
by being part of her son's ministry. And she was part of the ministry of helps and she was instrumental in the first miracle. She looked at all the servants at this wedding and said, whatever my son tells you to do, obey him and watch what he does next. So somewhere between the first miracle and the middle of the Lord's ministry, she gets a little carnal. She gets a little too familiar with Christ and she gets rebuked in front of a multitude, a great press. <laughs> I don't know how the Catholics sort that out, O Mary, Queen of Heaven. She didn't seem to be Queen of much at all. She gets thumped pretty good. She recovered herself, though, by the time the Lord's crucifixion rolled around. And she was at the garden. She was at the crucifixion. She was at the resurrection. So... Thankfully, family can start off good. Thankfully, they get a little weird. Thankfully, they can recover themselves. But here's the key we have to learn as spiritual saints. We have to be able to judge our family and interact with them according to the Spirit of God. If they're backslidden, we're going to have to treat them differently than if they're serving God. Almost all of my close proximity extended family. By that, I mean first cousins. And I actually grew up with second and third cousins too. And I'm trying to remember how that works right now. All my first cousins are born again on both sides of my family. I'm not close with any of them but one. By close, I mean I would call up today and we would talk on the phone for an hour and we would talk about the things of God. But the reason cousin Phil and I are close is because he's a minister of the gospel and he's hardcore. And we, we talk ministry. We, we talk doctrine. He proofed my last book for me and gave me some wonderful correction and insight on how to address some things from the Baptist perspective. My other cousins are born again. Most of them are carnal. They couldn't handle half a service in our church because I would offend them. If they repent and get hot for God, we probably have better fellowship. Where we fail as Christians is we fail to treat people as spirit beings, either right with God or wrong with God. And we just kind of put on this thick makeup, this thick caked on facade called family. And we don't judge them spiritually as the Lord Jesus just did in Luke's gospel. If his mother was right, he wouldn't have rebuked her and humiliated her publicly. But she wasn't right. She was wrong. She was trying to draw attention away from the Lord to her. She wanted to use her inroad and manipulate him away from his calling, which wasn't the first time she'd done that. <laughs> Remember when he was 13, 12, 13? They said, where have you been? Why have you stressed this out? He says, don't you know I need to be about my father's business? Marriage of Cain and Galilee. They need wine. What, what do I have to do with you, woman? My hour's not yet come. Hey, we want to talk to my son. Who is my mother but these that do the will of my father? Three strikes, you're out, Mary. Go sit down, woman. Thankfully, she got her act together and realized she has to be a servant of Jesus Christ too. She doesn't get any special privileges because the Lord borrowed her uterus. She has to be born again herself. She has to be spirit-filled herself. She has to serve Jesus Christ herself. And if she'll serve Jesus, then he can fellowship with her. And you've got to learn that about your extended family. 
If they don't serve Jesus, it's going to be real hard to have any kind of meaningful fellowship with them. And you may want it bad, and you may long for it, but if they don't serve God, and if they're hostile against your God, it's going to really hinder some things, and you're going to have to be okay with that. So let me give you, I think I've got four points here real quick. Four things to do when you've got Christian family drama. Going to give you a couple verses. Number one, if at all possible, live peaceably with all men. Uh, Romans 12, 18 says that very thing. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. We could apply that to extended family. Don't fight with them. Don't argue with them. Live peaceably with them. But ever mindful that of your own household shall hostility, hatefulness, and enemies arise. Because Jesus Christ separates people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, Nevertheless, the Lord has called us unto peace. So in that regard, we could say one of our primary callings is peace. And that's why we forgive and drop the charges, because we're called to peace. So you've got to make sure that even if you don't agree, even if you don't get along with family, you're at least at peace with them. You got to be at peace with them. That's the, the context of that is divorce. So we can cer certainly apply that to extended family. First uh, Corinthians seven fourteen says, "If the unbelieving depart, let them depart. A brother is not bound in such a situation. Nevertheless, the Lord has called us unto peace. So let us be at peace among ourselves. Let us seek peace and pursue it. That's Ephesians four. And let us answer the calling unto peace. I don't want fights with any of my pagan family." But I do want peace. I've, I think I've said this recently. I have more respect coming from non-Christ proclaiming family members than I do the pagans. Excuse me, the Christians. So let me clarify that because I got twisted in my own mind there, thinking ahead. My pagan family shows me more reverence and respect than my Christian family. That's a general statement. I can sit down with extended family members that are pagan and they're respectful. And they're like, oh yeah, you're reverend. Yeah, you're pastor. How's it going? How's the church going? You know, what are you preaching on? They, they even want to know, what are you preaching on? And then my backslidden Christian family, they want to act all pious and act like they serve Jesus like they think I do or like I think they think I want to hear they don't really want to know what I have to say. They just want to use me when they need a blessing or prayer. How about you ask me before you make a stupid decision so that you don't need my prayers later? Because I'm usually only called to pray when one of my family members has made some God dishonoring decision. <laughs> can you tell Chris to, can you tell cousin Chris to pray? Can you tell nephew Chris to pray? Can, can you tell him to have his church pray for me? Why? Because you made another stupid decision? How about, why don't you call cousin Chris and see what pastoral wisdom has to say before you go and do something stupid? We really need God to come through. We'll come through for God. Maybe he'll come through for you. Live peaceably. Number two, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is an important one. 
This is the one I think will help us more than maybe anything we've said so far, hopefully. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. This is number two. Know no man after the flesh. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, henceforth, know we him no more. Pastor Vaughn was a big stickler on this verse. Henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Anytime your weird family wants to use the manipulation called, well, you know, blood thicker than water. Blood is thicker than water. We may have to write a banjo song on that. Blood is thicker than water. That violates that scripture because the scripture commands us to know no man after the flesh. Blood does not permit the perversion of judgment. When, when all you do is know somebody after the flesh, you'll pervert judgment. What that means is, if all I ever do is look at my children and say, that's my precious, that's my little daughter, that's my firstborn, that's my only boy, that will pervert judgment. But if I can see my children, not only as my children, but as disciples of Christ under my tutelage, that I'm responsible to mature and train towards godliness, then it doesn't matter what my kids do, they're gonna be disciplined as if they weren't my kids. And quite honestly, if I love them biblically, they would, they would receive better, more accurate, more precise, more consistent discipline than someone I was not related to. But when your family or my family wants to invoke your family's last name, my family's last name, when they want to pull on the family string, what they're doing is they're declaring, I don't know 2 Corinthians 5.16, and if I did, I wouldn't obey it anyway. When blood is thicker than water, you are violating this verse because we henceforth know no man after the flesh. What we have to do is judge everything by the Spirit of God. What is the Spirit of God saying in this situation? Is the Spirit of God, is the Spirit of God compelling me to help them according to what God knows, or is it flesh compelling me to help them? A couple, couple months ago, I was listening to NPR and they were doing a special on the homeless epidemic in LA, or maybe it was Oregon, Portland. And there they were following a lady. She was a black lady and she had been homeless. And now she was a dispatcher for the homeless hotline. And she has an allocation of so much money to spend. And it was a very fascinating story because she gets a phone call from someone needing help getting off the streets. And so she says, you know, homeless dispatcher, whatever it was, this is Allison, how can I help you? Hi, my name is Janice and, and uh, I'm, I'm living out of my car right now, I need help. And over the, they had kind of played the recording of this conversation. And the dispatcher, Allison or whatever I said, over the course of the conversation realizes that Janice is her first cousin. She knows the girl, they grew up together. And at the end of the conversation, she finally decides to reveal who she is and says, Janice, this is Allison, Allison Smith, your cousin. Hey, no, I, and you can hear him talk back and forth and you can hear the dispatcher get emotional. And she says, okay, this is the number you call and this is what we can do for you. And, and I, I wanna see you at that facility because we have the resources to help you. And so she hangs up and the interviewer says, 
Does it cross your mind to have you into your, her into your home? You came off the street. You have an apartment. You have a place to stay. She has a little daughter living with her in a car. And the lady starts crying and she says, yeah, I, it does cross my mind, but I realize I am not capable of floating her. I don't have the resources. It will probably hurt me more than it helps her. And I can't risk it. Now think about that. This is NPR. This is a radio program. This is strictly natural wisdom. One hopeless woman who got to her feet helping another homeless woman who happens to, she finds out, realizes is her cousin and she realizes I can't help them. Even though that's my flesh, wisdom forbids me from helping her. No Holy Ghost involved. And yet, blood is thicker than water. Blood is thicker than water. I'm going to kill you and kill your family just like I did mine because blood is thicker than water. You can't do it. Henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Blood is thicker than water. Man, run away. When you hear banjo music like that, paddle faster. <laughs> Lord, help us. So number two is no, no man after the flesh. I don't care if they're your cousin, your aunt, your uncle. I don't care if it's your brother. The Bible will never per, per, permit you to be a co-signer on a loan. Proverbs forbids it. It doesn't matter. If my, it's my dad. The Bible forbids it. Why would I violate scripture? Because we share DNA. Number three. This is the one that's going to be hard for some of us. I got to wrap it up. I'm at about an hour right now, hour five. Got one more point after this. Ephesians 5, verse 11. Point number three. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, do you have an exemption from obeying that verse because blood is thicker than water? Because it's your dad, because it's your brother, your mama, your mother-in-law? Uh, does it say, have no fellowship unless it's a family reunion? Have no fellowship unless it's the family hunting trip? Have no family, uh, fellowship unless it's a family vacation? And then you can fellowship if there, when there's, even if there's fruits of darkness there? Listen to me. This verse doesn't care if it's your mom and dad. This verse doesn't care if it's your daughter, your, your cousin's baptism and afterwards there's going to be a big party there and there'll be booze there. This says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So don't let any family member manipulate you into fellowshipping with sin. A couple years ago, I was at a family reunion, an extended family on another side and we were doing family pictures and, uh, all of a sudden, I smelled weed. And I looked around, and like two cousins were smoking weed. And I got so mad. How dare you bring your little stoner weed out here? You can you not respect me? And I said, I I'm gone. Y'all are pathetic. I'm gone. And I left. Mad. Stupid. Have no fellowship. But let's, let me talk about this real quick, because I'm running out of time. Is manipulation an unfruitful work of darkness? So you and I get it, especially as Southerners. Family likes to manipulate. They like to use their words and pull on our emotions to make us do what they want us to do. That is an unfruitful work of darkness. And what we often pathetically do is submit to that. 
So not only are we violating scripture, we're rewarding their wickedness with compliance. We'll let that set in. Not only do we violate scripture when a family member manipulates us into their submission, into their will, their family reunion, their get together, their whatever. Not only do we violate this verse that says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, we reward them and we affirm that behavior that it works. And we condemn them to judgment, though we know better. The Bible tells us the answer to their manipulation is rather reprove them. So you may have to learn to gently, verbally rebuke Nana. Gently, verbally rebuke Uncle Billy. Gently, verbally rebuke Cousin Fred or your brother. And say, listen, you're trying to manipulate me with your insecure, unstable emotions. That may have worked on mama when you were seven, but we are grown adults. And I don't appreciate your wicked manipulation. Repent of that. And by the way, just for that, I'm not coming to your event. Give me some repentance. Let me make the decision out of my own heart and not out of your weird controlling lust. And maybe I'll come next time. Abuse, verbal abuse. We don't fellowship with that. You don't fellowship with verbally abusive people. You're a fool too. Guile, when folks want to use guile to control you, this is how we handle weird family drama. These are evidences of unfruitful works of darkness. We're to reprove them. God doesn't want you and I taken advantage of. Just like we don't want our kids taken advantage of by the playground bully or the neighborhood jerk, God doesn't want you and I taken advantage of. Why do we submit to it? Put your foot down and be delivered from weird family. And you guys know it. You've, all of you have experienced it. You're going to serve God better than a lot of people in your family, and it's going to make them mad, and the devil's going to move upon them to get you to slow down. And you've got to take your stand and say, I'm sorry. I'm not coming off this wall for you. That's our fourth point. Number four, turn to Nehemiah while you're listening. Nehemiah chapter six, last verse. Here's point number four. You won't win your family or bring them higher by catering to them or coming down to their reduced standard. You won't win your family by catering to them. You won't bring them higher by coming down to their reduced standard. Again, our, our theme is uh, troubleshooting or navigating family drama. If you want to win your family to Christ, you stand as a bastion and a pillar of righteous Christianity. My family has learned by now, don't pull me away from my church. Not going to happen. I have to tell some family, you know, the highways between us run both east, west, north, and south. It's just as far as me to drive to you as you is to drive to me. So come on. Hey, did you know your cousin pastors a church? Hey, do you ever think about maybe coming and visiting me and coming to my church and hearing me preach? Of course not, because you're dirty. But you want me to come to you? We had family one time local, and another family said, hey, why don't you come over? Family's in town. I said, why don't you come over? 
to where I'm at. I got church. Well, you know, they've driven so far, so what's another hour? Tell them to come over here. I'm the one with the church. I'm the one with the gospel you claim they need. Why is it, why is it when we're manipulated, they always expect us to make the compromise? And they're always expecting us to come down. But if we ever expect them to come up, we're judged as controlling and, and that's just legalistic. No, you're carnal and lazy. How dare you call me away from my God? By the way, the God who you claim is your God. Come on. Nehemiah 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Sanballat, I don't like this guy. He's a, a Samaritan, which means he's a Sunday morning only Christian. Samaritans worship Jehovah some and everything else some. That's like a Sunday morning Christian. Not every Sunday morning Christian, but most of them in this country today. And Tobiah, another Sunday morning Christian. And Geshem, the Arabian, total pagan. And the rest of our enemies, when they heard that I builded the wall, and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. Notice Nehemiah's got a work to do. He's got a job to do. These guys have been nagging at him, trying to talk him out of it the whole time. They used to, in the beginning of Nehemiah, said, we want to help. And when he said, no, you're not good enough, they got offended and now they're working against him. Thank God Nehemiah didn't come off the wall. He finished the assignment. Verse two, Samballot and Geshem, they sent unto me saying, come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. That's not Yoko's hometown, by the way, which is a really funny joke if you're snickering right now. <laughs> She's Japanese, by the way. But they thought to do me mischief. A lot of what we'll compromise for, for our extended family is really just gonna be mischief. And I sent messengers unto them. He didn't even go himself. He didn't even give them that honor. He sent messengers. I love it. He won't even come to respond to them. I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Do you see it? He says, I am up here and you want me to come down to here and I'm not coming down. How about you come up? Please understand, when we, you and I have family, even Christian family, trying to pull us away from what we are convinced in our own heart is our assignment and our mandate, what they're asking us to do is come down to their level. And part of it is because it'll make them feel good about their lukewarmness. When you're hot for God, anybody less hot than you is under conviction and pressure. Don't ever cool off. Don't ever slow down. Don't ever back, don't ever apologize for your standard. You keep pressing on. You won't save your family catering to them. You won't save your family living like them. You won't save your family bending and letting them manipulate you. Don't let them have the final say with their words of manipulation. Call them out on it tactfully and then pray with them in a prayer of repentance. And you only have to do that once and they won't call you anymore. Either way, problem solved. I've told one family member, are you a travel agent? No. Well, then quit putting me on a guilt trip. I'm not going. Quit trying to make my heart have something in it it doesn't have in it. Quit trying to make me do something that's not in me to do. 
Why would you want me to be there anyway? I don't want to be there. The only reason I'd be there now is because you're guilting me. That's wicked. But I, I want you to see from what the Lord said, he's going to divide homes. Because when his gospel is presented, even in the home of same children, they're not all going to serve God the same. There's always going to be one that rises to the premier position and one that's always the caboose. It's just how it works. You don't have permission to slow down and be the caboose. The caboose is commanded to rise up and be the cutting edge engine. Amen. I hope this has helped you. I hope if nothing else has given you scripture that you can go back and study and let it extinguish some of the pressure from your family. Let me teach you what my pastor Darren taught me years ago with great passion. He said, when your family is in town visiting you, never, ever, never skip church. Never skip church for visiting family. That is nothing but compromise. Instead, you tell them, hey, you're coming through Wednesday night. Great. Guess what? We're going to church. Come with us. Well, we're going to be tired. Not in the house of God you want. We got cushions there. If you come to our home, you're just going to sit down and watch TV. Why don't you sit down and watch our pastor for an hour and a half? It'll be good for you. Never, ever, never, ever, ever, never skip church for family in town. Unless, of course, it's your child being born that service day. Then you have total permission to not be here to be with your wife or hold your baby. Unless, of course, someone died that day. But here's the other deal. Why do we schedule funerals on Sundays or Wednesday nights? That's dumb. Let the dead bury their dead. What is that to me, Jesus Christ said? Follow thou me. <laughs> They're dead. Schedule it for Monday. Schedule it. Well, we got work. Let the boss man suffer. Don't let God suffer. Amen.